the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen speaking peoples, the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. And my friends, I'm so excited. We are so lucky. Today, Sophie Macklin joins us on the Numinous Podcast. You know when you have someone that you admire professionally very much, and so first you friend them on Facebook and you follow them for a long time there, and then you start kind of stalking them on Instagram and sort of wishing they would post more. And then, so then you have to like take their courses, you take all their courses because you just want to hear them talk. And then, and then you start citing them constantly in your own work to the point where your clients and students have to take their courses in order to understand what you're saying. That's what's happening right now. I'm making everyone who's a listener of the podcast become a fan of Sophie Macklin if you aren't already. I think if you've been in any of my courses, you've been like, man, I really got to take one of these courses that Sophie offers because Carmen's talking about them all the time. Um, so if you are just meeting Sophie Macklin for the first time on this show, I'm so excited for you. So Sophie is an anarchist mystic living on Tongva land near the LA River. She's lived in California for like 15 years, but she comes from Canterbury, England. She practices Brythonic polytheism, anti-fascism, devotion to an animate world, and anarchist living. She specializes in topics related to anarchism, mysticism, radical history, communication with the more and more than human world, anti-capitalism, anti-fascism, reclaiming the commons, anti-ableism, and exploring different ways of knowing. I want to tell you that I chose her to be the first reader of the manuscript of my book, The Spirited Kitchen. And to be honest, from the very earliest kernel of thought I had about even potentially writing a book like this, she came to mind as the person I wanted to give me the first pass of honest feedback. And I'm so grateful to her for being gracious and diplomatic about my shitty first draft where I, I wasn't articulating what I meant very well, but also I still had some things to unpack in my own mind about what to valorize and how much and, and what not to in a, in a book about ancestral veneration as a white settler under capitalism in a time of increasing fascism. I knew there was nuance needed and also a certain kind of firmness and some boundaries at, at times so that my work couldn't be pressed into the service of white supremacy. So I'm very grateful to Sophie for helping me see how I could improve my manuscript. Anyway, here we are now jamming on anarchy, anti-fascism, ableism, and ungovernable bodies. Sophie, I'm so glad you're here, and I'm so excited for this conversation. Please start us off with um, telling us what identities do you lead with? Okay. Um, yeah, I'm so happy to be here with you too, Colin. Um, I guess kind of like everyone, I feel like um, my identities are something 
bigger than the categories that we have for them now um, and are something that's always shifting and in relationship both with other human configurations and with um, different times and the more than human world um, but in terms of kind of situating myself um, in the current hierarchies of social organization that we live in um, I'm a white uh, working class from a generationally poor family um, person but within that I'm from England and so I was poor but living in a country that has um, been practicing massive violent exploitation around the world forever and accumulating wealth that way and so definitely benefited from things like the welfare state in a country um, yeah built on colonization um, and I'm a queer femme cis woman um, I'm disabled and sick and um, a psychiatric survivor um, and an anarchist and <laughs> that feels important to me um yeah I think they're the big ones so even just from your response I'm sure there are people who are already like wow <laughs> so <laughs> I know I you know whenever I've been in your classes and as I've observed what you share on social over the years like it, I'm always curious, like, were you raised in a particularly politically informed household? Like, how did you become radicalized? How did you know to even be an anarchist? Like, <laughs> that, that is fascinating with me. So, yeah. and, and are you comfortable with the term radicalized when I, I like, I don't, I don't know if, if that applies to you. Yeah, like, I think it is a word that makes sense within the limits of language that we have for understanding these things right now. <laughs> Um, but yeah, for me, it was something that felt, so my family wasn't um, particularly political. Like, I don't feel like I was raised um, with that kind of like um, analysis or sort of political stuff happening at home. But like I said, you know, we were poor and um, just, I, I guess for me, it's something that's strange. I feel like I was born like this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I feel like when I was a little kid, I was aware that things were not quite right and that I didn't understand why everyone else didn't think that like everyone mattered plants and animals mattered and um I was also just really struck by the levels of like different types of domination um and hierarchy like I would be in school particularly like looking at how teachers wielded power arbitrarily or just um and always felt something in me really wanting to resist that um and so yeah when I was like six like I became vegetarian because like I really cared about animals <laughs> and um started doing little like activist projects I had a little briefcase full of like pamphlets and stuff when I was like <laughs> seven and so um so I've just like always really cared a lot about this stuff but um I guess I didn't have the language around anarchy until I was older um and sort of yeah went through I guess some classic kind of like, um, like in my teens, like what might be considered more like liberal activism or sort of activist stuff, just what was available. Um, and honestly, a kind of like free party scene in England, the kind of like rave culture stuff and mm. protests and stuff that I feel like was a, um, 
a really vibrant subculture of kind of like illegality in a way, like being um, against the sort of rules and laws of our culture. Um, and then, yeah, I think I became self-consciously an anarchist when I was like, yeah, late teens or 20 or something like that. Mm. I, I don't know if this is the right, if we still use this term, but I feel like in England, there is a strong tradition amongst the underclass, if I can still call it that, yeah. um, of punk anarchy, like it, it, to a certain extent, it's youth culture, but like you brought up the rave culture, even Pink Floyd, you know, like this whole <laughs> kind of like a long tradition of uh, resistance really so maybe maybe that's sort of a thing lacking in my Canadian upbringing that makes me assume like how did you get politicized if not going to school but I think there is a, just a lot more culture of um, class consciousness um, maybe yeah. in in that that time and place what do you think yeah I think there is definitely more like I live in California now and like there are definitely I think there is more like in England and probably when I was growing up than here but but not very much mm. <laughs> and I think more sort of um in other places but um like the subcultures I was part of were small you know like when I was finding the bit like I was a weirdo you know <laughs> okay <laughs> this wasn't like massive okay. um, movement this was like um yeah I was like finding the other kind of like freaks and weirdos and people who loved everything and cared about the forest <laughs> like, um so I think it was still pretty small and fringe um but but yeah so then, did you just read a ton of books did you go to university how did you come to be so um like articulate with your class analysis and how did you how did you come to understand like power and hierarchy in a in a really explicit way yeah. you know there are lots of people who have like lived experience of oppression and so they mm -hmm. you know can develop um coping or mm -hmm. or um adaptation strategies but not everybody can become a teacher of like what let's understand the analysis here of like what is actually going on and offer yeah. the, the sort of cultural critique you do yeah, so I guess it's been like a lifelong journey, you know, like I know that's a cliche, but like I'm 37 now and it's been like a lot of things over that time. Um, but for me, it really was like I was thinking a lot as a kid and sort of writing quite a lot and thinking and talking. And like I feel like a lot of my ideas really were developed there, like young. But um, I also I dropped out of school when I was 14. And I think that was important. And I think um my mom kind of supported me in that because she knew how much I like read and wanted to learn about the world and you know, was so like um, passionate about that. So I carried on, uh, yeah, reading, seeking people out, seeking things out. Um, and then I did do a course to go to university, um, but I was just there for a year and then I, like a year and a bit, and then I dropped out um, and I've just carried on learning. And I think also part of this analysis, like in anarchist subcultures, there's like a very robust like um, practice of like experimenting with these things, you know, in lived reality and then reading things and talking about them with each other. And it's almost like we all have like PhDs in like, <laughs> you know, like it really has been for me, like um, a constant engagement with like, yeah, reading, but also practicing and embodying and feeling, um, 
Yeah, really, really. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so this brings me to a question that, uh, you know, I I had until probably taking um, beyond the blood with you because, you know, like I, I can like read stuff and look it up and Google it and kind of have a sense of it. But actually I would love for you to share with listeners, like, is there a difference between anarchy and anti-fascism? Like, how would you define those two terms for people just beginning to learn about anarchism and anti-fascism? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I do think they're different. Like, I guess for me, anarchy and anarchism is like a, um, like, it's working towards or like living with an ethic of like non-domination and non-coercion in everything. And so it's like a relational practice. It's like a, um, a way of being in the world that applies to everything. Um, and yeah, so I think, um, and sort of not, I think it differs from like other sort of things that are sort of political ideologies or something where it's not about having like a 10 step plan for the future, but really building the things we want to be building that might still exist in the future by creating them now and living it now. Um, so that's how I see anarchy. And I think of anti-fascism as, you know, it's more specific, like it's against fascism. And even though I think an anarchist would always be anti-fascist. Anti-fascists aren't always anarchists. And I think of anti-fascism as like the practice of fighting fascism. Um, and so it might share some of those similar values that I just described for anarchy, but I think um, anti-fascism is literally doing things to stop fascism, um, whatever that looks like, which is many things, but yeah. Mm -hmm. So Anarchy has this reputation as just being no rules, no rules. You don't listen to anyone. You don't care. Fuck the government. Like it's that kind of thing. But what you're describing seems to be much more centered around love and consent and things like that. And so what would you say are some of the, the like values that maybe, I don't know, it's like maybe people don't think of when they think of anarchy, maybe they do think of a more, um, punk aesthetic and you know maybe even um at times like rough or violent or Mm -hmm. like destruction of property and things like that like Mm -hmm. you're describing something different where like everybody loves the forest and is having very consensual (laughs) conversations around relationships and stuff like Yeah. yeah yeah I think um I think it's like one of the ways that it's been um described by sort of dominant culture as this very narrow thing is to put people off basically you know? <laughs> like and I think that that's um that's part of it um and I think and I don't want to sort of um diminish the fact that you know anarchists do sometimes use violence or like do you know it, it's like a multifaceted thing where people are willing to resist um oppression in all sorts of ways so it's not like completely other to that but um <laughs> Yeah, I think it's um, something that also where we've been raised and sort of indoctrinated so intensely into this idea of like what a peaceful, stable society looks like, um, which basically is a society that keeps its violence very hidden to a lot of like white middle class voters, for example, (laughs) um, but is actually horrifically violent. Um, but has this semblance of order and mm. so to think of something that makes that violence apparent is the thing that then gets called like chaos or like mm. disorder um 
but yeah is often just making those tensions visible and trying to do something else yeah mm, mm, mm. so what were you noticing then in your various communities and like in in the social media system, uh, ecosystem that prompted you to create your anti-fascist folklore course uh beyond the blood yeah so um it was a lot of things kind of over time and um for people who don't know that was like a class yeah like looking at how like um especially like uh yeah white people especially in uh the us canada australia new zealand like um have been looking to european ancestry practices european folklore um in a way that's really exploded in the last few years but has been going on for a while um and how that has started to overlap with a lot of uh fascist like outright fascist stuff like well i'm thinking when i took your course i was like oh hashtags <laughs> it never occurred to me really like I don't really read hashtags I think of like oh that's what people are putting for the yeah. algorithm or whatever but I, but then when I looked at some of the accounts that you recommended you were like and then here I, what were some of the hashtags that you were like watch yeah. out for that one <laughs> yeah well it was really interesting because like you'd see I'd see people I know liking things that are just like say Polish traditional dress or something some pit like a woman in a Polish dress or whatever and the hashtags would be like white is beautiful <laughs> old <laughs> like, like not fucking around you know like really <laughs> um explicit um stuff and just realizing that so much of that stuff that's kind of considered like sort of ethnic dress mm -hmm. or like um is being heavily promoted um by white supremacists and white nationalists um and so seeing that stuff and honestly in the sort of two or three years that I've been doing that class and working on it, it has grown exponentially like those accounts like the sort of really extreme accounts that are outright fascist that will literally have a post that's like fascism with like <laughs> she flowers and stuff like that wow. here's why fascism is interesting or like um wow. or just lots of yeah outright sort of white supremacist content um those accounts have grown significantly um, and their influence and their language has spread a lot too. You can sort of see that in things that don't think of themselves as fascist. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can we maybe, I don't want to say exactly define fascism, but maybe can we explain fascism and the relationship with white supremacy? Because they're not totally equivalent. Okay. We can like Google it, but essentially there's like a, there's um, a hierarchy of control. And it's like absolute control and absolute power. And it starts to bring in a purity ethic. And so this yeah. is where we start to go from like, this is a political ideology about like who's in charge and who runs the country and how did they get installed there to what are the characteristics of the society that we have? And it starts to become more of a cultural movement. So I like, this is because I think people might be surprised to think what fascism with pretty flowers and it's like yeah because fascism goes from being a political ideology about like power and how one obtains it and who gets to hold it and for how long and all of that and then starts to become a life way <laughs> that mm -hmm. is like a whole it's an identity mm -hmm. like these should be different things right <laughs> like mm -hmm. essentially um can do you have any thoughts on on like just helping people understand <laughs> yeah um it's funny it feels so big which is 
why I teach a class that's six weeks long on everything. Um, but I think that some of the things that, yeah, like you were saying, the purity stuff is really um, prevalent and interesting. Like this idea of like in a fascist society, um, there's this idea of kind of unity, like a cross-class alliance of unity, um, but it's always set in opposition to an other, you know, and there has to be some way that this like, who's in is defined and we can see that you know obviously famously with kind of Nazi Germany and this idea of like Aryans and stuff like that so something I think is important about fascism is I think that word has been it gets overused and used to mean something that's not fascism like I think it gets used to mean just like something very controlling or something you know or like I don't know feminazi sprung to mind but, you know just like <laughs> or like when a government does something very um yeah controlling or brutal it gets called fascist when I think that's often downplaying the violence of liberalism you know I think Mm. often some of the things people are describing as fascist violence are just liberal violence um (laughs) and I think yeah something that's really important to recognize with fascism throughout time is that it has this like big social movement aspect with a lot of characteristics that are unique to it, that it's not just a more extreme version of what we have now. Um, and so some of those things would be like a sort of strong charismatic leader, um, a real celebration of like traditional ideas of like masculinity um, and power and domination and almost like a sort of fetishization of those things. Um, and this idea of traditionalism, this idea of um, creating a narrative that goes back through time of this great people um, and kind of a going back to it, which is one of the ways it overlaps a lot with ancestry stuff that all fascist movements have done this, like appealing to this like heroic past that we can like connect with and then have this um, like go back to a more like pure essential culture um, and very much based in sort of the natural order of things Mm. that fascism will make appeals to kind of like what natural man is and what like, um, yeah, this idea around sort of purity and those who are considered not to fit into that needing to be like eliminated or destroyed um, or changed. So this is Um, like how you go from like cottage core (laughs) on your feet to like, oh, it's this like, old timey vintagey like yeah. we're going back to find our ancestral lineage and our roots and like yeah. oh this is the traditional dress and then like next thing you know it, it's like this versus that and we claim this yeah. land and we claim this this is our space and they're like then this like yeah. entitlement purity othering thing kind of happens the next thing you know there's like hashtag white is beautiful yeah. at the bottom <laughs> of your yeah. account Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is an important thing like that. Um, the ways that kind of blood and soil ideologies overlap with a lot of things that people I know, and you know, you know, sort of like our social subcultures or whatever, um, are interested in of like connection to land and being like to place and ancestry, that these are ideas that are very um, popular also with fascists um, and have been always and then it's interesting to see how that has like grown and how it's adapted that um, like as well as these like you know fascist states that have existed in the past there have been these like fascist currents fascist movements um, and that a lot of the work they've done has been deliberately in the kind of cultural sphere because after World War II it's hard to be like I'm a fascist and we're organizing (laughs) for fascism you know and so it was more like 
in music or art or um, publishing and um, these different ways that um, they've spread their influence and normalized ideas that might seem abhorrent if you mix them with certain things, um, but have actually been very sort of successful. And I think we're seeing the fruits of a lot of that now. Um, and yeah, I think for a lot of people who are um, connecting with like uh, different European traditions or something, for example, like if you look up on like YouTube, feels especially um, intense with this, like a Scottish folk song on YouTube, and then look at the comments. And I would sort of stand by saying you could look up any Scottish folk song and look at the comments for this, and you'll see a lot of people um, saying things about, like often Americans and stuff, talking about like whiteness or like Scottish heritage um, as something that needs to be like preserved, sort of anti-immigrant sentiment, mm -hmm. um, and really idealizing this idea of like a thin white woman in a long dress, like in the Highlands singing a song or something, <laughs> as this romantic image of like how it was and what we need to get back to. And we need to get rid of all this like mess like around it. Um, and so you can see how it's so influential where it's like, if people are just looking up certain things that that's what they're coming across. Um, and yeah, people are like a lot of people in these kind of fascist and fascist adjacent movements are like doing rituals every solstice, you know, like now. Yeah. And um, on the full moons and new moons and um, their Instagram accounts look like these beautiful rituals and um, to the old gods and, um, if you don't know, sometimes you won't know, you know, when you're first looking at it. Um, but those ideas are kind of being spread through that. Um, well, you're speaking to that notion too, of like kind of creating a sense of we've lost something. Yeah. And so now we have to preserve this thing. And so there's this like hyper um, protective mode of like, yeah, we have to preserve. And there's like the stuff about authenticity and all of that. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's like never messy. Whereas yes. like in reality, it's like, very oh, messy. <laughs> yeah, it's very messy. It's very um, disconnected. Yeah. There's hardly anything that hasn't been kind of a fairly recent in, you know, invention of like, for, for instance, you talk about the Scottish revival of like the yeah. late 1800s, early 1900s, like Absolutely. super recent, right? So, recent. so, so recent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's really true that a lot of the stuff that um, the ways that I've seen people kind of accidentally wander into those kind of like uh, pathway on those pathways is that idea of looking for these like pure traditions and um also this idea of like uh nation states like nations of europe um and i think people who i know who are sort of anti-racist you know consider themselves to be anti-racist white people have you know taken dna tests and tried to find out who their ancestors are so that then they know which practices they can draw on so as not to appropriate from like indigenous cultures and stuff which i think is a great important thing not to do and a great intention um but I think a lot of what that's looked like is this uh, reification of these national identities that didn't even exist in prehistory, where, but it, where it's just like something from the 1700s is suddenly being seen as the place to find belonging in. And that feeds very nicely into these kind of nationalist um, and then in the US sort of like white nationalist um, ideologies. Mm -hmm. And like with that, I think this... Um, idea that I think a lot of people have been pursuing of like who are you who were you before you were white or whatever you know I feel like it's been a popular question in 
subcultures I'm connected to. Um, and I think it's led to some sort of dangerous places. Like I think it's um, what the answer has often come back as is like, I was German and Danish and Irish or something. And that's where my family's from. Um, rather than sitting with the very complex thing that we are white <laughs> um, and that the nation identity isn't actually any better, like that these are the nations that have like colonized the world, like thrived on violence. Um, mm -hmm. And again, I feel like a lot of the sort of far right ancestry groups are just ready to sort of scoop people up who are seeking um, that kind of thing. A hundred percent. I see that a lot when people are following or kind of talking about Celtic. And I'm always like, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm like, where are we talking about? When are we talking about? And like, yeah. are, we're talking about a language group. Are we talking about like, mm -hmm. so that does all, I, that's like one place with like looking at different hashtags where, yeah, very quickly, yeah, yeah I'll be following someone. I've, I'm on TikTok now, just started on the TikTok. Oh, and so, yeah, <laughs> so fun, but I'm just stumbling around, don't really understand the culture of it. And like, it feels much more like being just like having a fire hose kind of like sprayed <laughs> on you of like things yeah. like you're not really trying to follow. But I was shocked, I tell you, at how many times I like, oh, I, okay, here's this creator I'm seeing more than once. I'm spending time on their videos and they're talking about, yeah, let's say Scottish or like Celtic heritage. Sometimes they're Scottish, sometimes they're American, sometimes they're, you know, wherever. And they'll, they'll be like little tiny phrases thrown out, like, I'm indigenous to this land, I earned it. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, wait, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you just said what? What are you saying? Yeah. And then, and so it like starts off pretty good and then mm -hmm. something and then like I don't know it gets like a little messy and the next yeah. thing you know I'm like oh I yeah I have wandered into a back room that I do not want to be yeah. in <laughs> like how do I, I get out <laughs> yeah and I think it's really I think that's actually a great example of that thing about um the word indigenous and this idea of like European indigeneity that is like a complete appropriation of indigenous struggle um like here in Turtle Island and other yeah. places but um and that was something that was deliberate like you can kind of trace that there's like um I don't know if you know the British National Party no like a far-right political party they were like in England um and their leader at the time was Nick Griffin and he was really pushing this thing about English like indigenous Britons indigenous English people um, as an as an anti-immigration stance um, and this idea really spread with these kind of like far-right white nationalist types to talk about this idea of European indigeneity um, as this thing to be protected you know because it's really just like appropriating those like a lot of the language of the struggle of like indigenous people um, and then you see people now using that like who I think would not consider themselves to be um, like no very much very much and are very much trying to find language that is respectful about I'm trying to do ancestral veneration within my yeah. white lineages and trying to think about being indigenous to what land and uh yeah I was leading um a somatic session and I said something about like we don't know what somatics were like for white people and how you know like I don't know what 
what like indigenous Highlanders of my uh, lineage would do because they've been displaced, not just for the past three, 400 years, but like since the Romans came, like, I don't know, like I have no yeah. idea. Right. And so, yeah. so, and then I kind of had to backtrack afterwards and be like, okay, well, wait a second, not to say, and now as a white person, I'm more bereft than indigenous people of yeah, Turtle Island. Yeah. Been, you know, like, it's just like, wow, we just do not have the language for like, what is it I'm trying to point to, which is like a person who is of a place. Oh my gosh. Can I tell you another story? This yeah. is a secondhand story that I just heard of a friend and she was at an event that was mostly white people. And there was an elder who was talking about her mixed race heritage and, um, but very much sharing kind of like teachings of indigenous Turtle Island teachings. And in it, she was asking how many generations people had lived, their, their, their ancestors had been in what we call North America. And then like basically made an affirmative statement to them about being of the land if they'd been there for seven generations. And I gasped, I like jumped back in my chair and was like, no, she did. (laughs) So even like not having been there, I'm like, oh, wow. Is this ever going to be manipulated, contorted, mm-hmm. weaponized, used as defense. Like I could, I, I yeah. just, I could see how so dangerous this is. And everybody in that room, I'm sure had a certain level of analysis mm-hmm. around, um, basic, you know, critical race theory and yet still yeah. love this kind of teaching. And I'm like very concerned about it. Yeah, I think it's very concerning. I think that's the thing when we're doing any of this kind of work is to really center analysis of power in it and look at how things are being used, who's saying what, why are they saying it, how are they saying it, how is it then operating in that space or in the world? Um, Because I think we, in terms of actual language for it, it's tricky, like we're finding the language for it. And I think part of what we're finding language for is the level of like, disconnection or grief or just alienation in our culture you know like this is something we're still finding language for to talk about with each other um but I think yeah looking at like yeah when we when we're engaging in this is just like a constant analysis of like how power is operating in the situation is so important um for that and a sort of acknowledgement that it is endlessly complex you know that we're not going to suddenly find a settled answer like mm-hmm. of like this is who I am and this is what I am and this is what I have a right to because I think that's one of the things is um it's like what does it mean to say this is my ancestry therefore I can have this rather than like this is my ancestry therefore it places me in this way and I'm interested in this or something mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um and I think something for me Um, in this you know as somebody coming from England um, where my ancestors have lived in the same area um, of England fairly small area at least you know some of them quite a lot of them for like traceable for like a sort of thousand years um, in sort of one family tree and then quite possibly longer you know probably longer than that Um, and I'm not indigenous to there you know like the way that like we understand indigeneity and what that means in our world right now is not how I grew up. You know, I did not grow up um, as part of lineage, just like connected to the land. Um, 
I grew up in a very alienated culture similar to the US, you know, um, and I think this idea that like if the sort of if people hadn't come to America and settled here, it would have all been fine doesn't hold up you know if you're sort of doing the go back to Europe thing it's like okay well look at what England is <laughs> you know it's like actually staying in the place where your ancestors are from isn't the answer you know like it isn't like the end of the story it's like we can see the same issues you know of like capitalism and domination and racism and um and whiteness you know existing very intensely in Europe and it was in the 1600s too in 1700s developing, you know okay so we had talked also about the purity culture that can go with it can we bring in how this shows up in the body and our relationship to the body and um like quote unquote health which ever yeah. since I took your course on governable bodies which I think honestly you know I feel very grateful that I got to take the course as a person who a works with a lot of people with chronic illness, um, mm -hmm. particularly autoimmune disorders, mm -hmm. um, and have for a long time, also have that in my family. And so support people both close and professionally. But I think in that program, and you know, there was like dozens and dozens of people, and then your mom and me. Oh, <laughs> <basically>. <laughs> But I just kept feeling a lot of kinship, just being like, wow, we're like listening to Sophie talking about <laughs> holding this space like so amazingly. And I just felt like very kind of like sidled up beside your mom virtually because Aww. I was like, I just feel like kind of like this very special little fly on the wall situation I'm getting to have that's like just like opening my heart so much. But it, it really after that, I was, I, I'm still stumbling over the word health. And mm -hmm. I've thought about it in a spiritual way, even before that course about like wholeness and all the stuff. And I'm just like, I don't fucking know what mm -hmm. is health. Like anyway, mm -hmm. so I want to talk about ungovernable bodies, but can you lead us from like, so you, your course beyond the blood was anti-fascist folklore, ungovernable bodies comes up and in many ways I see it as a continuation or an outgrowth or related mm -hmm. it's like there's bridge material there about what happens in a fascistic society around mm -hmm. health and wellness mm -hmm. that that um is related to what you're teaching about in that other course yeah no I think they are really connected and I think that that health piece actually and that's another way that we see it really overlapping with like our subcultures is that um you know, from the beginning of sort of fascist movements, there's been this strong eugenics thread, which was actually borrowed from the US and what was happening there um, 150 years ago, 100 years ago. Um, but yeah, that these ideas of like um, health and purity and naturalness um, and this idea of like a sort of what a body should be and having that be a very sort of limited idea um, that is basically like, a very, I don't know, strong, never ill, <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's a completely made up category, right? But it's like white male body of like sort of this ideal um, and how fascism has gone to like extreme lengths to try and like enforce that ideal, um, but how it can't ever completely do it. And I think that's important too, when we're looking at these things of like these regimes of control around that, is they're never fully successful because bodies are ungovernable you know they do fail they die right like they just in terms of like everything like there's um 
so many different experiences happening that they actually can't be completely controlled but um and people resist people don't want to be controlled like people do all sorts of things to resist it um and so yeah in ungovernable bodies it's like really exploring um how it came to be how we think of bodies in certain ways and why we value certain things like basically ableism like why is it that certain bodies are seen as good and worthy of care and reward and of the means to live basically um and some aren't what I loved about your course was it did get me thinking more about like what is health to me then because I I realize like oh the the ableism there's certain things that are pretty obvious like anti-aging you know like um ages that's like a thing where it's like oh yeah youth culture all those things we can see how in the fascistic culture there's this like reverence for age but it's like a very robust aging <laughs> you know like it's a very yeah, and not much room for aging honestly. right like, it's <laughs> right. like young virile male bodies yeah right right like, or like, like fertile women and saying about gender like I think that's another thing that's important to really know is that fascism is like very strong on um rigid binaristic gender roles and I think one of the things that we're seeing right now um with like uh attacks on trans people and um just transphobia and like stuff like exploding so much I really see as so part of this like fascist growth um and so yeah prescribing really rigid gender roles for everybody and like a complete like not allowance of like transness um and non-binariness mm-hmm. um and also yeah. that thing around aging where it's like look what 50 looks like for, in a woman now and it's like yeah. really it's like okay J- JLo doesn't look any different than she did when she was 25 and that's what everybody and I'm like when I get a gray hair, I'm so excited about it. I want to, you know, like, and Mm -hmm. it really made me think, you know, I'm going to share something. So in the Numinous Network, we had this um, workshop series called RCCX Mapping. Uh, I can do this in a nutshell. So RCCX is a um, gene mutation where that that is it's a theory by Dr. Sharon McGlathery that explains um, multiple co-inherited quote unquote rare diseases. So it's kind of like essentially her research is showing like, hey, look, if you have um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility, there's like a very high chance that you're also going to have psychiatric problems. And it's uh, certainly there's like um, social reasons, but she's looking at the uh, genetic reasons. And so here, this is what our theory is about. Anyway, the long story short is, so we were doing artistic expression around our CCX theory and trying to help us like process what our family history maps were like. So, and then by the fourth session, I was like, okay, <laughs> so I want a different vision of like aging and what health is and like in the ecosystem because part of our ccx theory is that you don't necessarily have to biologically inherit because um, due to affinity and affiliation people with let's say sensory processing disorders or very sensitive nervous systems or chronic illness or pain etc tend to hang out together because we like vibe right and Mm -hmm. so therefore there's a higher incidence of procreating together as well and so the genetic inheritance goes further down anyway so I was like what is health that I'm trying to help my child to inherit like if if chronic stress is what sets this off that's of course part of the theory is that you have this like um 
body primed for stress and a brain wired for danger and chronic stress sets off this gene mutation where multiple rare diseases will go off at once. And, and it's not just physiological like POTS and MCAS and fibromyalgia and all that, but also major mental health and mood disorders. So how do I pass on different conditions to my child considering, um, climate change, considering <laughs> the economy, considering all this stuff. And so literally I went back to ungovernable bodies, my notes, and was like, what does wellness mean to me? And I came up with my, um, affirmations, which is I want a robust body as I age. Like I want to be built like a brick shit house. I want to be like one of those crones <laughs> like, you, you know, you can, that can like, lift wood if possible, or at least boss people around from my chair and like people will listen to me if possible. I want pleasurable sensations in my body if possible. I want to be comfortable with seasonal changes like inside and around me with my hair color and all that kind of stuff. I want to um, influence and be influenced by my loved ones in positive ways with mutuality, reciprocity, um, giving and receiving care and love. I got to tell you, Sophie, after taking on governable bodies, I was like, I don't actually fucking know what I want for health. I like, well, <laughs> because I don't know. It's like unhooking from, from all the ableism that I've internalized. Mm -hmm. I I'm still left with these questions of like, so what is, what do I hope for? What is the best I can hope for anyway? So I, 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 throw this back to you. You created this course on governable bodies to unpack ableism. It seemed very related to also unpacking all the like supremacy thinking and um, capitalist thinking, especially. What are your hopes from ungovernable bodies? What do you hope people are going to leave that course with? Yeah, well, I guess like it's complicating some of these categories, right? <laughs> like even like what does it mean to have an idea of what health means? Like, do is that useful to us mm. um, to even think about? And what does that category, like, what does that category include? And what does it exclude? Who does it include? Who does it exclude? Um, and therefore, like, is it politically useful or socially useful or like um, to even be thinking that way? And I think that sometimes categories like sick or disabled and stuff like are useful politically to understand that like, in very broad strokes that there are these different experiences happening but I think when it comes down to it um they are so limited as to not be very useful for actually especially of conceiving of our own experiences um and I think you know one of the things I think when I hear your desires for the future um is like you know, as someone who like knows I will never be built like a brick shit house, right? <laughs> because my body is like a floppy fluid, like hypermobile thing. Um, that I think there's a sort of part of the way that ableism like affects us, I think is our imaginations mm -hmm. of like what a good life is and that a good life must mean having a robust body when mm -hmm. I'm older, you know, like, like mm -hmm. saying like, as I age, I want it to be like this because I think we've been taught that that's how you have a good life and you can be kind of independent, less in need of others. Um, and yeah, that that's- Or, more uh, useful to others. More useful to yeah. others, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, more able to like, protect yourself or like something. Yeah. Um, and I think that something that's like in the wisdom of like sort of crip and sick, like community and stuff is exploring all the different ways it, 
you can have a body in this world and what it takes to have those different bodies and experience joy and pleasure and connection and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, not aspiring to certain body states as mm. that's what we have, will have a good life. Mm. Um, like I think, you know, people talk about how it's like people will often fear disability more than death, you know, like mm-hmm. going through something and the idea of then having a life-changing disability being worse and I think that's the result of living in ableist culture where like yeah your worth is bound up with what you can do um and where we don't feel that we can necessarily rely on care from others and so a fear around like wanting to be like independent quote unquote yeah I mean Um, ableism makes a lot of sense in a capitalist context right (laughs) it's like you know the fear right yeah and I think and it really does and I think that's one of the reasons those sort of categories like capitalism and sort of like post-enlightenment ideologies love to categorize like that of like who's like well and who's not well and when really it's like people are having such a wide variety of experiences in their body that change over time for everyone you know that that is what's happening um and I think as much as we can finding the language to like deepen our experience of what it's like to be in our bodies now and share those experiences with each other and find new pathways new ways of understanding it new ways of making connections and solidarities through those experiences I believe that builds a sort of um, culture that will be making more room for those things for all of us when we're older you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that thing when you're saying about passing on like genetic stuff to your son it's like I really see that as like a collective issue, you know, like when we're um, on a planet that's struggling in the way it is and where the, what's happening with like trees or waterways or the salmon or something, um, that that's our collective body, you know, and the, the things that we're working towards um, always like, I was going to say, it's not even like should contain that, but they just do like any decisions we're making are part of a web that involves all of those things too. So mm-hmm. um, I think yeah, in terms of what we're passing on, it applies to everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Can I ask you a personal question about living sick? Because people often ask me this and I'm like, I don't have to grapple with this in the way that like, I'm not going to give a good answer to this. <laughs> um, people often ask me, from like a nervous system perspective or very often also from like a spiritual perspective in terms of like setting intentions or wanting to manifest things like how do you hold acceptance and love for your body as it is and the sensations and experiences you're having while you're having them even Mm -hmm. if they're shitty and also hold a vision for potentially feeling better do you see what I'm getting yeah. at? Where it's like, how do you hold that tension of maybe I could improve or I, maybe I could be well, or, you know, mm-hmm. may, like if you want to use the word, I could be healthier when there's also a part of you that is kind of like, and maybe this is like, this is what this is. And can I still experience joy and pleasure and fulfillment, even mm-hmm. though my body is in pain, let's say. Mm-hmm. I guess it's funny for me, they don't seem, um, like opposed to each other in a way and I think this is where like the sort of anarchist way of thinking of like means and ends comes back to where it's like we're practicing in the moment what we want to exist in the future um and so in terms of with my body it's like I do feel like I love my body like I don't have like anger towards my body I know a lot of other like second to say what people like sometimes do and that's totally valid (laughs) um but for me like I do feel 
like everything that happens is my body like sort of telling me something or you know it's like it needs something like when there's pain it like there's attention needed there and stuff um and so I feel like intending to that like in responding to it in relating to those parts of myself that are like um struggling or something um that creates any possibility of the thing that might make it better quote unquote but I don't usually think of it like that but it's like um if I'm in pain my natural response is to try and stop it <laughs> you know it feels like an alarm to like do something to address it and it's tricky you know because I'm in pain every day like it's not something that is just an occasional thing that then I treat um but it feels like just being in a long like apprenticeship to it to that relationship you know of being with my body and its different expressions um and because I see that like so yeah I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome um which is like an inherited like connective tissue disorder so I've had it forever but it first started being like really painful for me when I was about 11 um which is when I also experienced significant trauma as a child and I think they're very related, you know, and I, our really CCX do. theory does too. <laughs> yeah, it's so yeah. great. But guess what? Guess yeah. She like has uh pots and anyway, the doctor who created the theory yeah. can't carry it forward because she's so sick and couldn't even come on the, the podcast. So it's oh, like, yeah. 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 Anyway, sorry. Just amplifying and affirming. Yes. Yeah, no, it's true. And I feel like that Um, in terms of me having like this very, bendy body basically you know like everything's very flexible inside and out I often wonder like if I had been born in a different time a different place different culture and didn't have the same like traumas and stresses um would I be in pain with it I don't know I might just be like a river person who's flowy you know (laughs) and it might be fine and so I think for me like I'm aware too of like how stress compounds my symptoms And so that's for me part of wanting to create um, like a world that is like nurturing and caring and where there's not domination because I see that as one of the biggest like you know problems (laughs) in terms of what's happening to our bodies. Um, Yeah for me the lived experience of this makes me want to like care for myself and others and keep trying to create a world based in care. Um, So yeah they feel like the same thing to me Mm. I guess. Mm. Okay, so the last question that I always ask every guest is, how do you cope with grief and rage? And I'm particularly interested in the context of what we're talking about, living in a sick body or living in a way that is trying to create the world that you want to have. Like, what about when you're tired and you're in pain? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. how do you cope? Yeah, I think it's in different ways you know it's like different things in different moments but um I think for me and grief and rage like when I feel them it is like being with them and expressing them but not always sometimes I'll like lay there and watch like five hours of tv or something if there's too much pain or too much you know sometimes I'll definitely choose numbing as a way to like regulate my nervous system um but I think also just feeling so connected to yeah especially like plants and animals and people um I feel like feeling very connected to like joy and beauty and laughing a lot and loving things um, makes it manageable. If you know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's like an experience where I can be in like, yeah, deep grief or 
yeah, too tired to do anything, but um, connecting with my cat. <laughs> if I'm too tired, I'm just laying in bed and it's like, I'm there with my cat is a beautiful enough experience that it like is um, being alive still feels like, yeah, beautiful and worthwhile or something. I don't know how to sort of explain it, but it feels like not always being in like, yeah, grief and rage, but connecting. And I feel like I've, as I've gotten older, got sort of better and better at that of just like realizing that like all of the things that there are to be grieving and all the things there are to be raging about, um, I'm better resourced for all of that when I'm really nourished by connection and joy. Um, and so, yeah, that's really important to me. Mm. Thank you for being on the show, Sophie. I am, I've been so nourished by your classes. I honestly can just show up and listen to you talk for a long time, but like, I know it's, it's was wonderful to also hear other people's sharings and have breakouts, mm -hmm. but, um, I really appreciated the way you held space. And so I, yeah, I, it's, it's been really wonderful to have you on the show so we can share the conversation with others. And I, I strongly encourage people take you up on an opportunity to learn from you. Anytime you put out your courses, they've been truly life-changing for me. So thank mm -hmm. you for your work. Thank you so much, Carmen. Yeah. I've loved having you in those classes too. So yeah, thank you. And thank you for this too. <laughs> Friends, you'll want to get on the wait list for Sophie's next class, whether it's ungovernable bodies or beyond the blood or radical well tending. I can tell you this, it's going to be deep. Each one has radically altered and expanded my thinking. You will not regret it. Go to sophiemacklin.com and hover over the images to find more information or go to the show notes at numinouspodcast.com for links. Listener shout out this week goes to my friends listening in North Vancouver and in particular at Utopia Books uh, in uh, Upper Lonsdale, one of the places I think I got my first ever Oracle card deck there. So thank you to all you who are sharing time with me. Thanks to friends new and old listening in North Vancouver. If you enjoyed the content of this episode, let me tell you, you are going to love the Spirited Kitchen. If you're interested in animism, ancestral veneration, seasonal activities, um, being in right relationship with the land and sitting with um, complexity while also having a rich and nourishing devotional spiritual life, man, you should check out the pre-orders. You can buy them uh, anywhere you get books online. The Spirited Kitchen Recipes and Rituals for the Wheel of the Year is now available. Until next time, take care. <laughs>